Okay, great. Thanks, everyone. Uh, welcome to this afternoon's session. Uh, I'm Peter Tripe, partner at Deloitte and a member of the Life Assurance Committee. And the Life Assurance Committee is um, very pleased to bring you the session all this afternoon, an update on IFRS 4. Um, there's, they used to sort of like say there's two certainties in life, death and taxes, but I think there's been a third one added, which is deferral in IFRS 4. Uh, I think we're now into the 20th year uh, of uh, this uh, particular program. Um, but uh, with the ISB board's uh, meeting in February with their decision that they felt that they had addressed all of the issues that had been raised with the exposure draft of 2013, we actually feel like there actually is an end in sight. Uh, or maybe it's just a, a train coming down the tunnel. I'm not too, quite too sure. Anyway, uh, this afternoon, uh, to share you know, some of the developments and some progress, uh, we're very pleased to have Francesco Nagari. Uh, a bit of background on Francesco. He is the Deloitte Global IFRS uh, Insurance Leader and a partner in the UK member of Deloitte. He's now based in Hong Kong, where he continues to lead the development and delivery of Deloitte's Global IFRS Insurance Solutions. In addition, he has assumed Asia-Pacific Regional Client Service Leadership Responsibilities for some of Deloitte's largest global insurance clients. And he serves as a member of the European Union's Insurance Accounting Working Group and is now a member of the Insurance Regulatory Liaison Group of the Hong Kong Institute of Chartered Accountants, I guess. Um, so clearly eminently qualified to sort of talk about this. Um, just before I ask uh, Francesco to come up, uh, just one or two things on logistics, at least on this side. Sometime during the talk, a register will come through. Uh, just please sign your name if you want to claim CPD. Having recently been audited by the UK Institute, it is important that you can prove you were here. Uh, and I'm not too sure if there's a register on the Cape Town side, but uh, presumably uh, there, there may well be one. Okay, so I just want to check, can Cape Town still hear us okay? Great, thanks. Um, so the way it will work, I mean, Francesco uh, will sort of talk. Uh, we've got two speakers here. This one, which I'm holding, is the one that is going to the recording. This other one at the desk uh, is the one that goes to sort of Cape Town. So we just need to, uh, Cape Town, if we do drift away, just flag it to us, and we'll tie Francesco a little bit closer uh, to the, the desk over there. And then once we get to the Q&As, um, well, we'll try and work that one out um, uh, when we get there. Okay, without further ado, Francesco. Uh, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here uh, to uh, give a, a short talk about uh, uh, update on the drafting of uh, IFRS 4 Phase 2 insurance contracts. Um, I would like to start by uh, showing you this uh, picture. Um, I could have gone uh, many, many slides to my left uh, to show you the beginning of this uh, long history, but I decided to start only from the more recent uh, milestone in the long history of this project, which uh, uh, Peter was right. It started uh, uh, almost 20 years ago, and uh, I remember um, that one of my uh, uh, core uh, working group members in, uh, in Brussels uh, once came and gave a presentation about uh, the, uh, the project, and he, and he uh, showed us uh, a photograph of uh, himself and his, uh, his wife holding a little baby, born in 1997, and then showed another picture of that uh, little baby being a grown-up girl going uh, on her own uh, for, a, for a long journey around the world. And that was effectively the same date when uh, the standard uh, uh, 
uh, was uh, uh, started for uh, for the for the production uh, production which has been uh, quite uh, uh, difficult. Um, what happened in the meantime uh, uh, since that uh, beginning was that uh, the uh, institution that uh, started the whole thing, the International Accounting Standard Committee, actually ceased to exist uh, and was uh, succeeded by uh, the International Accounting Standard Board, uh, which is uh, still there, uh, although subject to continuous uh, scrutiny and criticism from uh, many corners of the world. And um, at that point, uh, um, um, a very uh, distinguished uh, uh, Scottish professor, Sir David Tweedy, was at the helm of the, uh, of the ISB, and uh, he felt that uh, with these uh, uh, important uh, acknowledgement of the role that uh, IFRS could play in the world economy that uh, came from the Lisbon uh, Treaty, which decided uh, from 2005 onwards to make uh, IFRS the uh, European Union, the internal market single reporting uh, regulation, uh, it should uh, make sure that uh, all transactions in the economy were covered by uh, a specific IFRS. And guess what? The first uh, discovery made was that uh, insurance did not have a standard in the IFRS book. And so that was clearly an important priority. Um, as they uh, put to themselves to work and uh, thought that in, uh, in a couple of years they could actually resolve the whole problem, realized that uh, very shortly that it was not possible. And, um, and so IFRS 4, as we know it, was produced uh, in 2004. And uh, that is one of those uh, uh, interesting moments in the history of a project because uh, you have a standard and then you read it and you approve it and you adopt it and you realize that actually that standard doesn't actually demand much of you. And, um, and so it was uh, true that uh, you had an FRS uh, uh, applied to insurance companies in Europe uh, but if you scratch the label, then underneath you still find uh, all the same national accounting practices that existed before. And the same was true for any, any other place in the world. So that uh, diversity of uh, accounting practices, uh, some really uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum, continued uh, all this time. So we have now been living uh, uh, for more than 10 years in this uh, uh, IFRS uh, fictional world where in fact uh, it's just a label but underneath there is uh, nothing really of, uh, of a consistent treatment of insurance contracts. Um, the board then decided to uh, start immediately what is, was called the phase two of the standard uh, project and um, the first attempt was to say okay uh, I think that everyone uh, have now realized the beautiful things that you can do when you have value assets and liabilities so we will develop a, a fair value standard for insurance contracts. And that was published as a discussion paper in 2007. Uh, reactions were very um, uh, skeptical at the beginning. And then when the great crisis actually unleashed its uh, devastating effects, uh, they were very, very negative. And uh, everyone said, look, fair value is uh, not something we want to play with dividends. Um, and uh, please, let's not have day one gains uh, from uh, insurance contracts. That really reset the clock because uh, those uh, three and a half years of work were clearly had to be uh, re-engineered in what uh, eventually became uh, the current model that we are uh, contemplating uh, for publication potentially later this year or earlier next, uh, next year. Uh, two uh, comprehensive attempts of drafting it uh, in that period. Uh, the first one, 2010, uh, when this uh, existing model, which uh, is referred to as the current fulfillment value model was first published, uh, no more than one gain, 
And so the gain uh, will be effectively uh, deferred at the point of sale. So it's still visible, still, you can still make a, a, a clear assessment as to how much you expect to make, but that gain uh, no longer flows into the earnings at the point of sale, and you instead uh, earn it as you fulfill the obligation. So the story goes that uh, the uh, ISB moved from uh, effectively what was a business-to-business -business model, where effectively you measure the contracts as you are about to sell them to somebody else and book the, the gain for that sale, in the PL to one was business to customer. And so the, the gain you can make, uh, you cannot earn it until the service to the customer is being delivered. Um, that first attempt was, uh, was good, but not, uh, not so good. And so another attempt uh, was, uh, was published. And this is where my timeline on the slide uh, begins. June 20th, 2013, the latest uh, full draft uh, of the IFRS the latest uh, full draft uh, uh, of the text of the new FRS was published uh, and uh, exposed uh, for uh, four months, attracting, as, uh, as it did in the previous uh, versions, uh, uh, more than uh, 200 comment letters, uh, including the one that uh, I wrote for Deloitte. Uh, that was uh, uh, an important moment because at that point, uh, the SB felt uh, very confident that they were uh, heading in the right direction. A lot of uh, comments were positive, and uh, the negative uh, connotation that uh, was associated with that project uh, started to become less negative. And um, that was uh, clearly encouraging, and uh, over the next uh, two years from that date, two, day, two years and a half, the SB worked uh, really hard, and so during 2014 and 15, deliberated all the various uh, items that, that were exposed, uh, and also refined some of the existing uh, prior items which had not been exposed for comments at that point. The ISB was busy doing other things, of course. Uh, insurance is not the only project. Uh, uh, if you have been following accounting, just generally speaking, you probably realize that uh, there were four major projects that uh, have been keeping uh, the ISB occupied over the last uh, five or six years. Uh, leasing, uh, which uh, has been published uh, only a few months ago, and uh, revenue, uh, which was published uh, about two years ago. So major, major reforms affecting, effectively, affecting uh, the entire economy. Uh, from an, uh, an insurance perspective, there was also another parallel uh, activity that um, the SB was uh, uh, developing, uh, and that was uh, the complete reform of uh, financial instruments accounting. The decision to do that uh, was um, effectively the great crisis of 2008-2009, and uh, it was really a banking uh, uh, solution. Um, at least uh, the political trigger for that was a banking uh, issue. The fact that uh, uh, the crisis was so much uh, uh, a banking affair, the governments of the world, the G20, uh, in uh, one of their meetings, uh, in fact, in April 2009, intimated that uh, all the standard setters in the world, in particular the ISB and the American uh, FASB, had to work together to deliver a single solution uh, that could... Uh, provide information to the investors as to what credit risk uh, is on the balance sheet and P&L of banks. Given that insurance companies are also big investors in credit, uh, uh, clearly that became an important uh, reform for insurance. And so what the insurance industry said to the SB at, the, at that time is, that's great, we're going to uh, follow what you're doing for the banking uh, sector, but please, uh, let's make sure that uh, when uh, you finish that uh, standard, you also finish the FRS for insurance contracts. And the SB said, of course, yes, we understand and approve that. It didn't happen. So the pressure of the insurance uh, lobby group uh, uh, produced uh, a different outcome to the pressure that the central banks 
had on these uh, other project, the uh, Financial Instruments project. And uh, in July 2014, this latter project was completed. IFRS 9, the standard on financial instruments, was published uh, and declared effective from the 1st of January 2018. So that created what uh, I have been calling the decoupling of the effective dates. These are the two most important uh, standards, if you like, in the book uh, when you prepare financial statements of an insurance company. And having a, a number of years in between the two uh, major reforms of your balance sheet uh, is not uh, um, an experience that uh, any CFO or chief actuary would actually enjoy particularly, given that you will have to explain to your management and to your investors how have you made up your numbers. And uh, as you do that, uh, those numbers change in the way they are prepared. So IFRS 9 was out and uh, the uh, insurance industry started to get really worried about the decoupling and uh, managed to uh, transfer some of their worries to uh, a number of uh, important institutions including uh, the uh, institutions uh, of the European Union. Uh, the European Union uh, then started a, a clearly um, articulated campaign to say, look, uh, what you have uh, decoupled, you must recouple. And uh, after uh, almost two years of uh, discussion with the ISB, we now have uh, uh, just to wait another couple of months, uh, three months, and uh, we will see the end of that decoupling. There will be a solution. Uh, that the ISB has just uh, approved uh, last month that will allow the uh, deferral of IFRS 9. Uh, so if you have um, met certain conditions, uh, effectively you can demonstrate uh, by looking at your liabilities that you are uh, a predominantly insurance-based uh, uh, business, then uh, you are acquiring the right to defer the effective date of IFRS 9 uh, for a number of years. Uh, that number of years is a finite number, is three, and so that means that uh, uh, either uh, you will have to uh, implement IFRS 9 when IFRS 4 phase 2 is effective, or if later, you will have to do that on the 1st of January 2021. So we are now seeing here some blue dots appearing on the right-hand side of the slide. Uh, the first one is um, the publication date of uh, what is likely to become, almost certainly in fact, IFRS number 17 in the series. Uh, so we'll stop talking about IFRS 4 phase 2 at some point uh, in the near future and we'll refer instead to IFRS 17. When uh, that standard is published, uh, um, we will also have uh, an effective date and um, we can uh, exercise ourselves in terms of uh, our betting skills now to say, okay, which date will they choose? There is a public commitment from uh, the ISB, uh, which was uh, made uh, three years ago, to give approximately three years from the publication of the standard. That uh, um, lapse of time was chosen because, uh, among others, Deloitte, uh, together with the Economist Intelligence Unit, uh, did a survey of uh, nearly 300 finance executives in the insurance sector around the world, uh, Asia, Europe, uh, Africa, North America, and the, um, if you like, the model uh, choice in terms of uh, how long do you think you're going to take to implement this was about three years. And so armed with that statistical evidence, uh, the ISB decided that that would be the commitment. Uh, things uh, have evolved. Uh, the industry has learned even more about the difficulty of implementing uh, this uh, comprehensive uh, set of rules. And um, there is now almost a unanimous, I would say, uh, pressure from the industry worldwide to give uh, themselves uh, an extra year. 
And so although the um, commitment will lead us uh, to conclude that uh, publication date at the end of this year or beginning of next year should probably lead uh, the ISB to choose the 1st of January 2020 as the mandatory effective date of IFRS 452 or IFRS 17, probably there is a chance that the insurance industry may stimulate a little bit of generosity from the regulator and uh, the 1st of January 2021 may be chosen. There is also this nice uh, you know, matching of the effective date of IFRS 452 with the sunset close of the deferral of IFRS 9. And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, equivalence of dates uh, could be an attractive, uh, uh, at least from a psychological perspective, uh, uh, scenario. And uh, I wouldn't uh, actually discard at all that the insurance industry may turn out to be successful in uh, convincing uh, the ISB. The reason I'm uh, concluding uh, the way I do uh, is that... Uh, Although we know that uh, the ISB is often criticized of being a, a very strict and dogmatic uh, accounting regulator, if there is one area where they always displayed a significant level of generosity, that is uh, on setting effective dates. If you look at uh, IFRS 9, in its first version, it was uh, due to be effective on the 1st of January 2013. So, if you like, the banking industry has been even better because they managed to, move, to, to push down the effective dates by an extra five years uh, from where initially it was supposed to be. And so I think that uh, the, the good insurance industry should have a, a good chance to actually persuade the ISB that uh, an extra 12 months would be uh, an appropriate uh, uh, concession, given that uh, right now they are not prepared to make any more changes uh, to, the, uh, to the total uh, body of requirements that uh, is, is going to be published. So that gives us, uh, therefore, a, a nearly certain uh, timeline with uh, a 1st of January 2020 or 21, and we don't even have to wait uh, until the publication. In fact, uh, the ISB uh, last week said that uh, they are scheduling uh, the board meeting in September to decide about the effective date. So as we come back from our um, break in, uh, in August, uh, they don't work in August, uh, they will be uh, sitting down in Cannon Street in London and making that uh, uh, famous choice. So by the September this year, we will already know that uh, this uh, new standard will have effectively set uh, a date in the future by the time we will have to be complying with. When these dates are chosen, and that is uh, uh, customary in the standard setting world of the ISB, that means that the uh, publication of the standard is only two or three months away. And that's why uh, uh, recently I've uh, seen more and more commentators uh, arguing that perhaps the end of 2016, after all, was uh, the more likely scenario of the publication date. But we'll see. Uh, this, uh, this project has been uh, uh, always uh, subject to a lot of uncertainty, and so that is uh, uh, still the case uh, today. When, when Peter invited me to, uh, to come and talk to you, he, he, um, he was very keen that I give you an update about uh, the drafting of uh, this standard. Uh, so what I want to, to tell you first and foremost is that uh, the standard is already fully written. Uh, and that has been the case uh, since uh, uh, middle of March. In February, as uh, Peter already uh, referred to earlier, uh, the, the last board meeting uh, was held uh, on uh, deciding what, uh, what to do with the project. And that was the point in time when uh, uh, the ISB unanimously approved that uh, all the conceptual decisions necessary to write the standard had been reached, that uh, the entire due process required by the constitution of the uh, ISB had been performed uh, satisfactorily 
all constituent parts have been listened to, all common letters have been read, and all the decisions uh, arising from uh, having read those letters and listened to those stakeholders been taken. And so that uh, uh, started what uh, in the uh, ISB constitution is called the balloting process. This is uh, no longer public, it is a private process, uh, which means that uh, the ISB staff uh, is now being given the authority to take pen and paper and write down the standard. And uh, given that the standard already started from uh, two versions of a complete text, complete text, uh, it, didn't, uh, it shouldn't surprise you if uh, in the space of uh, seven weeks it was ready for the first round of comments. Now, the first round of comments uh, has got uh, a strong South African flavor. Uh, because uh, you should know that uh, for each major project, the ISB uh, designates uh, a small group of the members of the board to be uh, the so-called advisory group. And that has uh, been the case also for insurance. Uh, the four board members who are part of the advisory group are Dallas Scott, uh, the South African board member, Pat Finnegan, Stephen Cooper, and Sue Lloyd. Uh, Pat uh, has uh, announced uh, a few months ago that he will be retiring at the end of this month, and uh, Martin Edelman, the German board member, will take his place. Within that group, then, there is a team leader, and that's why the South African flavor is particularly important, because Darrell is uh, that team leader. So that means that uh, he will effectively work with the other three uh, advisory group members to uh, understand uh, where the standard should be taken, to listen to the constituents, uh, to their concerns, their suggestions, their recommendations, their criticism, and then work with the staff to address them. And, and so Darrell effectively has been uh, a driving force in moving that standard uh, to its uh, natural uh, state of completion in February. At that point, the balloting uh, is, um, as I said, a private uh, affair, but um, the ISB continues to be open to interaction. And so we need to understand then what kind of interaction is the ISB going to do. This is called the outreach activity, which is no different from the same type of activity they conducted before, but uh, unlike the previous one, is a bit more private. What the ISB explained during that uh, meeting in February is that uh, first and foremost, uh, they intend to reach out to different jurisdictions on uh, those particularly critical aspects of the standard to ensure that uh, there is transparency in the drafting, drafting process, and in particular, they are uh, concerned that uh, as this standard will be translated in so many different languages, people that read it in a different language will understand it in the same way as it has been written in the English language. And so a lot of these uh, outreach activity will be done for those countries that are actually planning to translate the standard in a different uh, language and to make sure that uh, selected uh, members of that particular jurisdiction uh, involved in understanding uh, how would, would they write it and then discuss with those that actually will prepare the financial statements whether they actually would do exactly the same things as, uh, or more or less the same things as uh, people that read it uh, straight from Latin uh, would do. The ISB uh, then uh, agreed that uh, during this uh, period of balloting uh, they will also uh, maintain an ongoing communication and so you will have seen that uh, probably uh, Dallas Scott uh, has the ability of being uh, in several different places in the world almost at the same time. He is, uh, is one of the most traveled board members, never refuses the opportunity to meet investors, preparers, 
accountants and actuaries to discuss their perspective. And that is a phenomenal uh, activity and uh, hats off to him because uh, it is uh, effectively how the uh, principle of open communication has been embodied in, uh, in practice. And uh, uh, Daryl was uh, in Hong Kong um, lately in, uh, in January and during that uh, discussion, for example, uh, where we talked about uh, the furrow uh, the of FRS9, but also the state of their personal perspective to, uh, to the particular topic, and uh, that gives us an insight as to where the board is, is going on, on the drafting. The outreach uh, uh, could be, of course, uh, a very large-scale uh, activity, or perhaps not. And so uh, it's important to, uh, to know that uh, this will be... Uh, targeted uh, in terms of the wide uh, range of issues that will be contained in the, sta in the standard, but then will be a, a broad uh, outreach for a select uh, few uh, items. And in particular, that uh, list of a few items uh, will cover uh, some of the uh, more recent uh, decisions that the ISB has, uh, has reached on the standard. One that has been particularly hot uh, is uh, the concept of the unit of account. And just a few words on that. The unit of account is effectively the smallest unit in a book of enforced policies that the standard will require us to take into account for measuring how much money we make. It is effectively the basis for the release of the deferred profit in this business-to-customer model that each of us preparing financial statements under the new standard will have to take into account. One of my, one of my clients, the UK... Prudential um, has got one of, his, uh, one of its leaders uh, sitting in, uh, in the European uh, Insurance Accounting Working Group uh, where I was formerly a member before moving to Hong Kong. And uh, uh, this person, Richard Oswang, uh, has been uh, sharing uh, to the uh, working group members, uh, including one of my partners, uh, uh, one particular piece of information. Uh, Prudential did uh, an estimate of uh, how many units of account uh, they may likely to, uh, to have based on these uh, dec decisions of the ISB, and they came up with uh, 250,000. So that means that uh, you need to have systems in place that can run 250,000 individual group of policies with the actuarial systems feeding information on a current basis uh, all the time and allow you then to book the profit uh, in your financial statements. You will not have to disclose 250,000 uh, numbers but those will be effectively subject to the audit of your auditors and uh, provide pro probably uh, very interesting uh, management information as well uh, to, uh, to your directors. So this uh, um, topic is certainly going to be uh, one that the ISB is keen to test and discuss uh, in the widest possible uh, outreach po uh, possible, really. Um, other more... Uh, uh, um, if you like, uh, less controversial, I would say, uh, topics will be then tested uh, with a more restricted number of people. The other topic that uh, the ISB will certainly talk to uh, as many uh, constituents as possible is uh, the variable fee approach. Given that this uh, approach is, uh, is the one thing that is uh, certainly new compared to the 2013 exposure draft, uh, that is uh, um, something that the ISB is keen to understand uh, how it is applied in different markets and um, whether people in those markets are actually uh, satisfied that will uh, produce uh, faithful information in the financial statements. Um, 
when uh, this was debated in February, the ISB also uh, committed uh, the staff to work on a staff paper. So this will be uh, a staff document, staff paper that doesn't have the authority of an exposure draft. So it's effectively a, uh, an official uh, working document, but without any authority in terms of its setting interpretation. But it's, it's still very helpful. And uh, we would I would expect that uh, sometime probably uh, over the late summer, this uh, summary paper uh, describing uh, how this variable fee approach would be written down in the standard will be published. Now, given that the, the full text of the standard has already been in place since March, given that the board has already been providing comments uh, to each individual page of that document, uh, um, I presume that uh, with the new version of the standard that uh, the ESB staff will be preparing in the coming weeks, there will be then uh, a possibility for them to take an extract from their document, uh, put it in this uh, staff paper, write uh, all the necessary uh, commentary around it, and then publish it. And that's why I'm uh, anticipating that this uh, staff paper, and that would be just my personal estimate, uh, may be released uh, in September. That would be an interesting paper to read, uh, given that this is uh, so important in the context of the economy of a balance sheet of, uh, of the sector. This, uh, in, in my opinion, represents probably the most material class of uh, insurance contracts. We're probably talking about trillions of, uh, of dollars of liabilities that will be accounted for under this approach. So why was it uh, so late in the day to be, uh, to be decided? Uh, and the reason is because uh, it relates to participating business where the policyholder is not just a customer of the insurer, but effectively becomes uh, almost like a quasi-stakeholder, like a shareholder. Uh, the premium that is paid uh, into uh, the insurance company is then uh, allocated in a particular fund, and that fund is uh, generating returns, uh, which um, are then shared between the shareholders and the policyholders, creating what the ISB has then defined a direct participation. Uh, feature. And this direct participation is at the center of the variable fee approach, which is effectively to say, I'm not, uh, as an insurance company, I'm not earning any, uh, any premium here. What I'm earning is a fee which is variable. And the variability comes from the fact that uh, it, it is derived from uh, assets which I've been able to buy because I've uh, been funded by the policyholders. And uh, between the policyholder and me, the shareholder slash insurer, we will split uh, the earnings that those assets generate. The, uh, the novelty is that uh, on top of the existing uh, measurement model with all its current uh, measurement features, this uh, variable fee approach effectively revalues that deferred profit that you have calculated at the point of sale. And so the business to customer model, which uh, effectively just earns out over time the deferred profit expected at the point of sale, in this particular instance, uh, revalues it up or down with relation in relation to the values of the underlying items and that creates a, a very satisfactory outcome from a, an accounting perspective because uh, the volatility of assets and liabilities is faithfully reflected in the financial statements and if you do hold those uh, assets that uh, you are going to use uh, effectively to create uh, the stream of bonus payments to your customers then the liability and the assets really move uh, in uh, synchronization with each other, uh, effectively representing faithfully the uh, profit margin emerging from the running of that uh, participating business. The other thing that uh, the ISB has uh, agreed uh, will, be, uh, will be done in the standard is uh, to write examples. 
and there will be a lot of them. These additional examples will be designed uh, to help us uh, effectively do during these three or four years periods uh, that is going to uh, lapse between the publication date and the, the mandatory effective date to understand what these uh, new concepts, these new requirements will actually mean in practice. The examples are also designed to ensure that uh, the uh, application of these uh, uh, requirements uh, is not uh, different across different jurisdictions around the world. We are all uh, conscious of the fact that uh, IFRS uh, has been uh, probably the winning uh, set of accounting standards in the race to become the, the future global accounting standard. Uh, US GAAP is uh, still a formidable body of uh, requirements and uh, full of insights to understand how to reflect uh, performance uh, of a business that uh, transacts in particular um, activities. However, more and more the US is uh, alone in using US GAAP. Uh, it is in fact already surrounded by countries that uh, have adopted IFRS to a significant extent, Canada in the north, Mexico in the south. Even when you look uh, across uh, Africa, there are effectively very few countries in Africa that have not already made uh, uh, a complete uh, statement of adoption of IFRS as their national uh, accounting regulation. The same is true for the European Union since 2005, at least for listed companies, but more and more the member states of the European Union are now pushing down IFRS even to non-listed companies. Uh, one of the latest examples is the United Kingdom, which uh, from the 1st of January last year, 2015, effectively introduced a new UK gap that is uh, based on uh, the IFRS uh, for SME plus the uh, effectively the cross-referral to the FRS as adopted by the European Union for large companies. And in particular, for those companies where there is a significant uh, public interest, like insurance companies, then this becomes a full IFRS. So examples clearly are important to uh, ensure that there is a, a common practice in applying this, uh, these requirements. And uh, during the debate, uh, I captured uh, three particular examples that uh, I felt were important uh, to share with you today. The first one is uh, examples around uh, the use of the other comprehensive income for indirect participating contracts. You heard me talk about uh, just a moment ago about direct participating contract. Well, there is also the opposite. There is the indirect participating contract. So what is that? In the same way as we have uh, uh, those pool of assets uh, being uh, held in the balance sheet uh, and uh, a clear contractual term in the policy telling the policyholder that the bonus shall be set by uh, effectively sharing the returns of that uh, pool of assets. Uh, there may also be another form of uh, asset-dependent uh, contracts where you don't tell the customer where the money is going to come from, but you promise them a return which is uh, effectively based on some form of asset dependency. Think about the uh, North American-style universal life contract where the general account uh, is used to fund a discretionary bonus, which is uh, clearly an asset-dependent return. That absence of a, of a clear link, contractual link between the, the cash flows under the contract and the assets of the insurance company breaks down the direct participation uh, clause that uh, the standard has now introduced. And although it is still an asset-dependent contract, uh, it will uh, be classified as an indirect participating one. And uh, those companies that sell these, these contracts uh, clearly operate in a highly leveraged balance sheet and uh, the volatility that uh, investment return 
will uh, generate on those uh, uh, P&Ls is uh, significant, is material. And so the attraction of uh, splitting the effect of uh, current interest rates in terms of discounting and the fair value of assets is strong. Uh, that uh, uh, issue is uh, addressable. There is a solution uh, both for the assets and the liabilities, and that is to split the effect of uh, market interest rates between uh, an amortized cost-based uh, reporting in the P&L and the difference uh, to uh, market values through another section of the overall statement of comprehensive income called other comprehensive income, effectively flowing through equity. And uh, it's important that uh, uh, the ISB is uh, producing some examples for indirect participating contracts because the absence of a link with the underlying items uh, creates uh, a difficulty to, uh, to have uh, effectively a cost-based uh, but variable, effectively, interest expense being reported in the uh, financial statements in the P&L. And this is uh, what the example is uh, expected to uh, illustrate. The second area is uh, amortization of the CSM to P&L over the coverage period. This is a very important topic. Uh, it is, in fact, going to be the, uh, the single most important topic for every insurance company that uh, will be reporting under this uh, new standard. It is the driver of the profitability in the future reporting environment. And so having examples that explain how this profitability will be accounted for is going to be critical uh, for executives in charge of the implementation to make sure that uh, the execution of that implementation plan delivers exactly what uh, is intended. The other uh, important example is uh, the allocation of the CSM in case of contract lapses. So two things now to say uh, with reference to the requirements. The first one is that uh, the ISB decided to be perhaps a little bit brutal in terms of uh, the, uh, the drivers for the recognition of profit. And they have accepted that there will be effectively only two drivers. The first one is the passage of time. And so if you look at uh, the individual contract, uh, this uh, expected profit uh, that you have calculated at the point of sale will be earned through P&L just as time goes by. Every day, the same amount, if nothing else changes, of course. The other driver, the other driver is uh, whether the contract is in force or not. And that's why lapses play an important role. If the contract lapses and you still have uh, a portion of that deferred profit not being earned at that point in time, you shall be required to earn it in full. So it goes to P&L as a surrender profit, effectively. And having these uh, kind of examples will eff effectively convey, hopefully clearly to everyone, that these are the two fundamental principles applicable to all insurance contracts that will uh, effectively guide uh, CFOs and chief actuaries in the future to determine the profit uh, for the period. To do all that, so clearly the number of examples will have to be greater, and uh, we don't know exactly how many, but uh, an indication came during the debate uh, that uh, if they've used uh, 50 examples to illustrate the application of the new revenue standard in FRS 15, certainly the 12 examples that were used in the exposure draft 2013 are insufficient to uh, convey the, the spirit of uh, explanation and illustration that the SB has now agreed. So a lot of discussion then followed, and uh, I think it's important that we reflect on two uh, particular aspects of uh, the examples and how they will be uh, drafted. The first one is that uh, they are going to be real simple examples. So don't expect uh, an example in the standard to be uh, comparable to a, a real situation in your company. Uh, that is unfortunately not the case. The examples are going to be designed effectively 
using very simplified fact patterns to illustrate one point at a time. And so it is only by reading all those uh, illustrative examples and then creating your own uh, models, if you like, uh, uh, in the spreadsheet, so you can then create a, a realistic way of uh, assessing how this uh, set of requirements will affect uh, your balance sheet and P&L. The other important feature is that uh, these uh, uh, examples uh, are likely to be uh, creating the possibility of a bright line. Bright line. Um, there are a number of judgments where you feel that uh, a quantitative uh, call must be made. Um, the ISB did not make it in the actual requirements, but may actually do so in the illustrative examples, which are not part of the standard. So they're not mandatory. They're just there for guidance. This is a great risk, a risk that the ISB faces all the time. Uh, they produce standards with examples, and that uh, will be uh, um, run by the ISB staff and uh, through the outreach activity we talked about earlier, mitigated uh, hopefully to a significant extent. Other aspects that uh, will require uh, careful drafting uh, will include uh, the scope of the standard. Although there is a definition uh, of what an insurance contract is, uh, that definition will then be subject to some uh, specific rules, scoping out uh, certain, certain transactions that uh, for other particular reasons uh, will be uh, deemed to be uh, uh, associated with a better standard than IFRS 4 phase 2. The cost objective in respect of the OCI approach for indirect participating contracts we already talked about and the level of aggregation. So this is the uh, unit of account. It's another way that the ISB has been referring to, to those uh, rules that uh, will be in place to determine how to uh, aggregate those uh, policies in force to calculate then the profits uh, to be earned over time. Now, there are four rules uh, that uh, the ISB will illustrate in the examples. The first one is the simplest. You have to group policies uh, by the time they've been sold. And so the vintage idea of a number of policy years or policy periods uh, is very much part of the new standard. So you have uh, an open-ended portfolio. That open-ended portfolio, first and foremost, will have to be sliced down uh, by reference to the point in which each policy was sold. And you can then start aggregating on that basis. The second dimension is to say, okay, within those policies that I've sold, say, for example, in 2015, I will now have to analyze uh, how they respond to the various uh, risk variables that will affect my measurement. And if they respond to different uh, uh, risk variables, say, for example, mortality in different ways, then you will subdivide that vintage of 2015 in, say, five or six uh, different risk variable groups. Then you look into each of these uh, risk variable groups for 2015, and you assess uh, whether they were sold in that year with the same expected profitability. And so if the profitability, which is measured by this deferred profit, uh, measured against uh, the expected inflows, premiums from the contractor, comes to a similar ratio, like 40%, then the group doesn't get split anymore. But if you happen to have sold uh, the same product uh, at different level of profitability, then these uh, 2015 equally sensitive to risk variable group uh, will have to be split in two parts. Let's call it uh, the more profitable and the less profitable part, two separate groups. And then within, within each of these uh, separate uh, profitable groups uh, with same risk variability and the same uh, year of sale, you have to apply the last dimension. That is the size of the profit you expect to earn. 
And what they want to say there is that if you have uh, big profits from big policies, you shouldn't uh, combine and, and aggregate them with small policies with small profits expected, even if in proportion they are the same. But the size, the dollar amount of the profit will be the final assessment. And you will have to bucket then again within this group uh, the uh, various policies to make sure that uh, they are all similarly sized in terms of the expected deferred profit. And then uh, you can figure out why uh, my friend Richard Olswang from Prudential was saying that uh, they estimated uh, for their own group uh, uh, probably 250,000 uh, units of accounts uh, is not uh, um, a crazy idea. These examples will also be road tested and uh, it's likely to take place at the same time as they are checking uh, the uh, meaning of the standard, the meaning of the requirements in different languages. They will also take some of those examples with them and ask people to tell them back what you think this example tells you. How do you apply it in your company? And this road testing uh, is uh, not on the model itself, but on the specific item that has been illustrated in the example. And will be effectively uh, a quality control uh, mechanism. So that means that uh, whatever they're going to hear from uh, the uh, participants in this uh, outreach on the examples, they will not change their decision. Those are now effectively locked down as a result of the balloting decision, uh, but they will try to uh, refine the drafting in a way that uh, the users of the standard preparers and the auditors will be able to conclude uh, in a similar way uh, wherever they are. The drafting activity of the SB uh, will also um, inevitably produce a number of uh, markups on the, uh, on, the, on the text of the standard, and that is exactly what happened uh, in the last uh, couple of months. Uh, after the advisory group uh, reviewed the standard and uh, effectively signed it off for uh, circulation across uh, the remaining uh, board members, uh, each of them had uh, the red pen in their hands and was entitled to provide markups and comments and questions to the SB staff, which they did uh, uh, by the end of last month. Uh, the staff then went through all the comments and decided that out of all these uh, comments from 14 different uh, highly intellectual uh, professionals, there were four issues that were worth bringing back for discussion. This is what they call the sweep issues. And that uh, discussion has taken place yesterday. Uh, there were four areas. One, once again, and perhaps not surprising, uh, on the level of aggregation, where the ISB uh, was asked to vote on some refinement of the level of aggregation, uh, which they did and confirmed that uh, the profits emergence will always be by reference to this uh, group, to this unit of account that has become really very important in uh, setting uh, the boundaries uh, of uh, how implementation will have to be done uh, going forward. The second sweep, sweep issue was about uh, changes in the current amount of the CSM for contracts which uh, do not have the right participating features and uh, effectively they clarified uh, an important uh, um, feature of the standard um, in terms of uh, how it is going to be written down. That feature is the one that uh, protects the P&L of insurance companies from uh, being uh, affected by uh, negative or positive uh, changes in assumptions in a particular period of time. So imagine that you are effectively uh, implementing these uh, current uh, measurement basis on your enforced book of business. If you change the assumptions uh, and you compare that change in assumptions to the quarterly return that you're going to report, you may end up having a, ve a very material change arising from that revaluation, for example, of mortality, uh, given that you have uh, many, many uh, millions of policies on your balance sheet. 
The ISB has agreed uh, and confirmed a uh, long time ago that uh, if you are changing assumptions about future cash flows and you have uh, deferred profit, those changes in assumptions will be adjusting the deferred profit. They will not impact uh, those uh, cash flows, those, uh, those uh, assumptions will affect future cash flows and the profit is there to be deferred, to be earned against those future cash flows. And so this uh, uh, unlocking mechanism is uh, effectively um, a feature of the standard which has been uh, very positively commented by everywhere around the world. The third sweep issue was about uh, the effect of discount rates. And uh, one of the key features of the new standard is that uh, each uh, insurance company will have, uh, will, uh, will have to uh, separate um, the profit into uh, uh, subtotals, the underwriting margin and the investment margin. And um, when you have a measurement uh, of, uh, of these uh, um, current uh, valuation of the liabilities that uh, will, affect, uh, will be affected by the time value of money, uh, you need to have clear guidance as to where you're going to put the uh, unwinding of the discounting and also where you're going to put the revaluation of the, of the uh, liabilities if uh, market interest rates will move the discount rates up or down. And this uh, guidance effectively provides further clarity on the geography of, uh, of, this, uh, the, of the returns that uh, insurance companies will make between underwriting and uh, uh, investment margins. And finally, uh, to my personal surprise, they uh, decided uh, to uh, scope out uh, from the variable fee approach all reinsurance contracts, either from uh, reinsurance uh, companies that sell them or decedents that buy them, uh, on the grounds that uh, the underlying uh, uh, assets that uh, will be part of the seeded business uh, do not flow through the uh, reinsurance uh, contract itself, and therefore it was inappropriate to uh, allow or to require, in fact, reinsurance contracts to be accounted for in that, uh, uh, in that way. So then uh, if I look at the known uh, next steps, uh, uh, I've been put already in standby as the uh, IFRS uh, insurance leader uh, for my network. Uh, I am one of those uh, people that will be uh, asked uh, under strict uh, confidential clauses to uh, review the draft uh, standard that will uh, emerge from the, the uh, work the staff has now uh, initiated following the sweep issues discussion. And uh, probably sometime next month, I'll be uh, given a few, a couple of weeks to respond and uh, again provide what is called a fatal flow set of comments. I will not be able to say whether I agree or disagree with the content. I will only be able to say whether the content has been written in a way that conveys uh, the known decisions that the ISB has taken. Um, I don't know for sure, but I anticipate that this may be a number of uh, 50 to 100 people around the world. Then uh, we will, uh, the, the ISB will take a summer break so the, no activity will be effectively uh, happening in, in public at least uh, during the month of August. Uh, and as they re resume, uh, the first thing they're going to do is publish the uh, amendment to IFRS 4 that will effectively recouple the two standards that have been decoupled for, uh, for all this time. The decoupling uh, of uh, IFRS 9 and IFRS 4 phase 2 effective dates uh, um, is, uh, is a very controversial uh, matter. And uh, the ISB has decided to uh, offer two alternative solutions, given that the deferral, uh, the pure recoupling uh, uh, approach, is going to be uh, um, subject to a very high hurdle. Only uh, reporting entities that uh, can have uh, in excess of 80% of their liabilities arising from insurance activities can qualify for the deferral. If you don't reach that level, 
you will have to adopt uh, IFRS 9, you, uh, you may then face uh, an increased volatility because of the number of assets uh, that will uh, be reported after that PNL. But then the ISB has given us another solution called the overlay approach, which is effectively the creation of a series of journals that will reverse those gains and losses from PNL and move them into OCI. A very expensive uh, approach that, uh, based on the canvassing I've done around the world, appears to be uh, highly unpopular. In September, later in the month of September, there will be a board meeting, uh, third week of September, and that's when the choice of the effective date will be made. Uh, the outreach uh, will be uh, in progress at that point. Uh, it's probably likely to start next month uh, and will run probably through uh, to the end of the year. And then maybe at the end of the year, we're going to get uh, a nice little uh, uh, book appearing under the Christmas tree. Uh, that could be FRS 17 for your joy, or perhaps uh, uh, later uh, in the new year, and maybe it's going to come with an Easter egg, and you open it and find the, the book inside. Um, that is uh, yet to be decided, uh, and uh, only the actual practical uh, execution of the, of the drafting and the refinement and the publication, etc., etc., is uh, likely to stand uh, on the way of that uh, eventful moment. And uh, by that point, we can then start uh, looking at our clocks and uh, realize that uh, the beginning of the implementation, whether it's over the next three or four years, has uh, begun. And so sleeves will be rolled up and work will start in earnest and against what is likely to be a far more certain set of requirements than we have been able to enjoy so far. And with that, I would like to thank you again for your attention and open the floor for any questions you may have. Thank you. Okay, so technology-wise, I've got a mic over here, so people in Joburg, just raise a hand and I'll bring it across. Um, I think we will have an issue then that uh, we will hear the question on this side, but Cape Town won't. So, Francesca, if you could repeat the question uh, into that mic and then uh, before answering it. Uh, then conversely, um, in Cape Town, if you want to ask a question, if whoever owns the mic on that side, could you just uh, sort of give us your attention and then uh, you, you can ask the question. Okay, so on the side, in, any questions? Thank you. So the question is, uh, uh, well, we all heard the question, isn't it? So uh, I don't need to repeat that one. So, uh, it's only the one that comes from here that I have to repeat for. So the, the very good question. Thank you for that. And, and uh, the, that has been quite uh, uh, the, the hottest uh, topic around this deferral uh, is um, really the, 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 numer the numerator of the ratio. So what number are we going to put in the numerator of the ratio that will determine whether this is 80 or 75 percent of the balance sheet. We know for sure that the denominator is the total liabilities reported under FRS today, so I've done it again, um, under FRS today in the balance sheet of the entity being tested. Um, when um, they finally settled on the numerator, they have uh, they've been quite generous. So what they got uh, is uh, liabilities uh, arising from two things. The first one, all liabilities uh, that are generated by contracts under the scope of IFRS 4 current standard, so today's classification. Second, 
they've also added the uh, liabilities from investment contracts that uh, fail the current definition. Uh, so uh, investment contracts which are effectively not transferring any significant insurance risk, uh, they are not uh, sharing uh, uh, returns on a discretionary participating basis, but are accounted for at fair value to P&L under IS39. In addition, uh, they really felt generous. Uh, they also said you will add all those liabilities that are related to insurance activities. And the standard that is going to be published in September is likely to give us a fairly longish list. For example, if you have uh, borrowed money uh, to raise uh, subordinated capital in your insurance subsidiary, uh, because uh, there is an insurance capital requirement that allows you to raise subsidy capital that way, that financial liability will be counted as well in the numerator. If you are paying tax because you're making profit in the insurance liability, in the insurance activities, then tax from profit arising from insurance activities will also be added. If you are paying employees, and those employees have got uh, a defined benefit uh, uh, plan, for example, and you've got a pension liability associated with those employees, also you can add that liability. So the liability clearly is becoming a large number at the numerator. The result is that uh, the uh, threshold has been elevated. There are, in fact, uh, two levels. The 80%, more than 80% is the, the lower level, uh, but it's still uh, um, not giving you an, an absolute assurance that you will be able to uh, elect the deferral. The safe harbor is only when this ratio is above 90%. If you are between 90% and more than 80, you then need to do a test. You need to look at uh, what is um, hidden behind the other liabilities that are making the complement to 100. And if those uh, uh, residual liabilities uh, are actually uh, representative of a significant non-insurance activity, then you fail. The fact that you are more than 80% and, and less than 90 will not be sufficient to qualify for the deferral approach. So this uh, uh, double level, effectively, you got the first chance, you can get in the safe harbor zone above 90, and then between 90 and more than 80, you got this uh, second chance, is effectively where the ESB has landed. One thing I take the opportunity also to mention is that uh, this deferral right is, uh, is all or nothing. Uh, so you test these uh, at the reporting entity level. If you qualify, then the whole reporting entity will defer. Uh, if you don't, the whole reporting entity will have to implement IFRS 9, even if you have material insurance subsidiaries, which could make up 75% of your balance sheet. Uh, we don't like that at Deloitte, but uh, we have lost uh, that battle. We wanted to have a kind of a waterfall approach, so you fail the top of the company and you can then apply it again later, further down. That would have been convenient, particularly for bank assurance conglomerates, where you've got large banking and large insurance subsidiaries living together under the same umbrella. But the ESB uh, felt that uh, that would be difficult to explain and therefore rejected it. So this all-or-nothing model has been taken into uh, the final stage of the, of the standard. Any other questions? So the question is, uh, um, given that uh, in companies prepares of financial statements will, uh, will have a, a strong interest to, uh, to present profit as early as possible, uh, but at the same time, um, uh, there will be a, a, an interest in uh, deferring as, much as, as long as possible the payment of tax. Uh, this uh, new uh, uh, accounting standard that effectively displays so explicitly and for the first time the expected level of profit without having uh, earned it yet, would that uh, generate uh, a tax uh, modification in the legislation, if I interpret your co question correctly? 
uh, is a very good question. Uh, I know that uh, tax authorities have, uh, have been thinking about that. Um, and the reason uh, they've been thinking about it is because uh, when they look at uh, the current uh, solvency regulations that um, a number of jurisdictions have been uh, developing, uh, they don't see that uh, CSM. If you take Solvency 2, for example, uh, Solvency 2 will give you that uh, profit on day one as a credit to your solvency position. So it becomes effectively a source of capital. And the tax authorities are saying, okay, so my fellow regulator on the solvency side is uh, giving credit to these guys for selling profitable business. What should I do then? And this is really the key fundamental policy decision that uh, finance ministers will have to take in the next three or four years. Should they base tax on solvency balance sheets, in which case they may want to tax day one, solvency surplus, or as they do for all the other businesses, use accounting profit um, for taxation of insurance companies. In that case, the deferral of profit at the point of sale will effect, effectively make them wait until you earn it before they can actually subject that uh, amount to taxation. At this stage, uh, uh, from my vantage point, I cannot say whether tax authorities have got a preference for one regime or another, but I can tell you for sure that several tax authorities are thinking about it. So it is a place where my uh, advice to the industry is uh, take an active, uh, uh, in a, in an active brief on, uh, on that because uh, the last thing you want is uh, an opinion to be uh, effectively ingrained in the head of uh, senior tax uh, authority regulators, and then uh, it's difficult to stop them to change their mind. Any other questions? As, as, a, as a guesstimate, um, in terms of implementation efforts at the standard that we're currently looking at, um, where do you see the effort lying across actuarial people, data people, IT yep. people, finance people? Yes. Maybe Yes. Uh, so I, uh, I've, I've been uh, blessed by the fact that uh, a number of, uh, of Deloitte clients have actually asked us to, uh, to run what we call business impact assessments for them. So we have already done several projects around the world where we calculated exactly that, the budget uh, that uh, companies wanted to uh, put through the board for approval to secure effectively the amount of money necessary to implement this. And uh, I've seen already many uh, organizations calculating uh, the efforts across uh, finance, uh, actuarial, IT, project management. And the one thing that uh, when we did the first one uh, two or three years ago was uh, how smaller compared to our expectation was the contribution, the actuarial um, function. Uh, the one surprising feature of uh, the budget, uh, the, the first one we did, was to see how much greater finance was, for example. And so uh, um, that was... Uh, something that we then found uh, again and again and again. The uh, transparency in particular of, uh, of this uh, new accounting regime calls for a much greater investment in uh, robust finance uh, systems, sub-ledgers, um, control systems around the data that actuarial systems, upgraded actuarial systems will produce, but then have to be stored somewhere. And so that is what effectively has been uh, uh, creating a strong demand uh, for finance resources to be working side by side uh, with the actuary ones. Uh, another thing that uh, we notice is that uh, these uh, set of requirements uh, almost na naturally uh, create a critical path in implementation. And the first uh, function, which is uh, uh, 
busy in uh, implementing is actuarial. Uh, all implementations uh, for the FRS 4, FRS 2, FRS 17 really have to start from a, a substantial upgrade of the actuarial uh, systems. The reason is that uh, you have effectively to uh, harmonize what has not been uh, uniform uh, for, the, for the longest uh, time in the, in the history of this sector. And then you need to produce information which can actually be put through journals, debits and credits at the level of granularity which uh, in today's reporting practices is unseen. In any of the practices that you see today, you will not find this type of transparency such as the one that the ESB is intending to uh, uh, enforce uh, on us. So I would say that um, probably around 35% uh, of the effort will fall into the actuarial uh, function. Another 35% will be around uh, finance. And then the remaining 30% uh, will have uh, about 10% uh, 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 for project management, and the remaining 20% will be technology. That is uh, on a ballpark uh, what uh, most of our business impact assessments have told us. Another important feature is uh, uh, whether this uh, distribution of effort is uh, resulting in the same duration of effort for all types of business. And, uh, and, and that is actually not the case. Um, because of the uh, enormous amount of effort required for the long-term earning of profit, uh, life insurance uh, um, companies will face a much greater effort than uh, short-term general insurance companies in implementing these, uh, these requirements. Uh, at least, uh, I would say, twice as big as, uh, as a general insurance company. And so general insurance companies, when they learn about the requirements, they may soon realize that uh, the length of time that uh, the industry has been asking in general for the standard is actually really for the benefit of the life insurance industry. The general insurance industry, in my opinion, can probably implement the standard within two years from its publication. Okay, great. Are there any other questions on the case <laughs> side? Yes, we don't want more Yes, there is, there is that risk. Uh, this, uh, this reform is so comprehensive and so radical that uh, there is always going to be a level of controversy around it. And uh, any, any phase, even if it is as, uh, as innocuous as uh, the writing of examples, will still generate uh, controversy and comments. Um, is it going to stop this, the standard setters to finish their job? At this stage, I don't believe so. But once a standard is published, it doesn't mean that it's set in stone. And we've seen it uh, uh, many times. IFRS 9 has been through five different versions before it became effective. So, so the same could happen to IFRS 4, uh, phase 2, IFRS 17 when it's published. Uh, and it will offer another opportunity for people to, uh, to comment. And uh, the standard uh, can be modified uh, through uh, uh, an amendment process. And um, studying uh, the requirements, uh, preparing for implementation could offer that opportunity to the board to realize that perhaps there was a better way to do certain things. Uh, I cannot guarantee that uh, this is going to happen, but for sure, 
technically it is uh, possible. Uh, the examples uh, uh, in outreach that you mentioned uh, uh, will certainly inform the quality of the drafting and the ISB is actually intending to use it uh, not to stop the process or to change, but rather to uh, make it clear so that um, when we all read it, uh, we all reach the same conclusion. That's uh, what is, is the most important thing, is uh, uniformity and consistency of accounting for insurance contracts. Okay, great. Uh, I think we'll call the session to a close. Um, so it just uh, remains for me to, first of all, thank our hosts, Discovery on this end and Old Mutual on the other side, and then also to thank Francesca. Thank you yeah. very much uh, for your presentation this evening. Thank you for having me.